0: You're listening to Church Podcast
1: with Pastor Bill Carpenter. Let's take our Bibles and let's turn in the Old Testament to the book of Hosea. We'll be reading from Hosea chapter 1, beginning with verse 2 through verse 8. And then we will skip over and read from Hosea chapter 3, the first five verses. Beginning in Hosea 1, beginning at verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea... The Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all but i will have mercy on the house of judah and i will save them by the lord their god i will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen when she had weaned no mercy she conceived and bore a son now hosea chapter 3 beginning with verse 1 and the lord said to me go again Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lathic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod, or household gods. Afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. The
2: word of the Lord. Thank you, Pastor Bill. Uh, I'll tell you what, if you are new to church or Christianity in general, I just want to start by assuring you that you have come to church. Um, maybe you thought when the scripture was being read, where in the world have I ended up today? I didn't think these words were supposed to be spoken in church, but you've come to the right place, you're safe, and, and I promise everything's going to be okay today. Uh, as Pastor Bill has said today, we're launching into a new series called A Pretty Decent Church. And this sermon series has a special story behind it. Um, A couple of years ago, one of you brought into our office a box of books. That's just how I remember it. And I don't remember which one of you it was. We get books from time to time. And sorry to say, we don't read all of them right away, if ever. Um, And these books got put on the shelf. And there was one particular book I remembered, and it was called Church Signs. It was like a hardcover book with just unusual, quirky little church signs all throughout the book. And, of course, we didn't have time to read it, so it just got stored on my shelf. And then several months later, we were moving things around in our office, and I took out this book, and I started looking through this book of church signs. And honestly, most of them were pretty cheesy, as are most church signs, especially the ones that try to be funny. Um, But there was one that I found that it was like, oh, I really like this one. And I got a big laugh out of it, and I had to share it with Pastor Bill. It was just this normal... Like Baptist Church sign, it looked a lot like our church sign. You know, just normal the name of the church it had the service time underneath it, and then it had this little um, appendage sign right below it with their slogan on it. And the slogan was a pretty decent church. And I just I had a good laugh about that, and I shared it with Pastor Bill. And over time, that those words didn't stay locked up in the pages of that old book. We continue to joke about it. We continue to talk about it. We continue to actually use it in the way that we talked about life church to other people. And I think I liked that slogan for a couple reasons. Uh, the first reason is I have a hard time with people that toot their own horn, uh, especially when it comes to church, because those of you who have been around church for any amount of time, you've, you've encountered some mess, right? I mean, can we just see a show of hands? Who's encountered any church mess anywhere? Yeah, that's pretty much all of us, right? Um, And and the thing of it is, is we encounter church mess because the church is made up of people, sinful people, broken people who hurt each other. And and there just is always this mess that comes with the part of being human and gathering together. And I just don't like it when people try to pretend like their church somehow escapes that mess that follows the rest of humanity. Uh, But the second reason I really like this slogan, because I think it's pretty accurate in what we might call the, it's ecclesiology, the way that we speak about church. I think it's pretty accurate. I think it's, it's what, how we should think about the church, and that's the topic of today's message. So I won't get into that right now because we're just introducing the series. But in general, this series is about us looking into the scriptures and asking the Lord, Lord, what do you want your church to be? What should she be about? What kinds of things should she value? Um, what, are, what are we supposed to think is really important? What, what's not so important? Now, when we say we're, we're having this series about the church corporately, I don't want you to think that there's not going to be any personal application for you because that's pretty important to us as Americans, right? We need personal application. Well, there's going to be plenty of that uh, because the church is only as strong or as healthy as its individual members, Right, So if we're going to grow into anything as a corporate body, it's going to require each and every one of us as individuals growing into that thing too. But with that being said, we do well as Americans who really prize our individualism, um, our independence, to think for a moment, think for even a series, a couple of months, about what it means and how important it is to belong to the church. I hear lots of Christians saying nowadays, uh, I really don't need the church. I can just kind of go to church on my couch at home. I don't need to belong to any community of believers. But hey, the New Testament knows nothing of a Christian that is not intimately connected with a body of believers. Um, On top of that, we find at the end of the story, at the end of the Bible, Jesus is not coming back for us as individuals. He's not making like an individual plan for me to come back for Dave. He's coming back for us together. The bride, the church, And that's what this series is all about. We want to be the kind of church that Jesus is anxious to come back for. We want him to find us being faithful to him. And so this series is not about navel-gazing. It's not about tooting our own horn. It's not about saying, this is who we are, and and over and over again talking about what what life church is so much. But it's about saying, Lord, who do you want us to be? What sorts of things do you want us to value? And then how do we become that by your grace? That's what we're doing in this series. Now, today's sermon is sort of the self-entitled sermon of the series. If this was an album, this would be the self-entitled song. Uh, A pretty decent church. And you might be surprised to learn that our very interesting passages in Hosea, I think, are a perfect picture of God's relationship or how God thinks about the church. I think that's where we need to start. We need to start, before we talk about anything the church is supposed to do, We need to talk about who we are, about our identity, what gives us our identity. And so that's where we're going to begin today. Now, just as a a couple of words of introduction before we actually get into Hosea, um, when we think about church, there's lots of different words that comes, lots of different things that come to our minds, right? Uh, Many of you, when you hear about us, when you hear the word church, you think a building, right? Something similar to this with an auditorium and a kitchen and classrooms and stuff. And you'd be right, like if, if I said to you, hey, I'm gonna, I'll meet you at the church this week, I'm talking about this building. But the New Testament never uses the word church in that way. Now, the word we find in the New Testament is ecclesia, and it always means a gathering. It means a gathering, just simply a gathering of believers. It's a community of people that have said yes to following Jesus. That's what church means. It's a gathering. And there are two particular ways the New Testament uses this word, the first way is in referring to the church around the world. We would call this in the Apostles' Creed the Catholic Church or universal church. This is the big C church. This is the church that's, all, that's from 2,000 years ago, the church that exists of all of um, the historical church to today, all the believers that have ever been alive, that have ever followed Jesus. That's what that church consists of. And we as Life Church, take our small little part of that huge community. Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology defines it as the community of all true believers of all time, okay? So this is massive body of believers, this massive community, dead and alive. That's the big C church. That's the the Catholic church or universal church. And this series is not primarily about that, though we care deeply about the church worldwide, the church around the globe. And we do everything we can to strengthen that church and to love that church and to pray for that church. But this particular series is focused more on the second use of the word ecclesia or church in the New Testament, and that is to refer to a local gathering of believers. So Paul writes letters to churches. He writes a letter to the church at Philippi, to the church at Corinth, to the church at Ephesus. So he's talking to local groups of believers in cities, and then he'll even get smaller and he'll say, tell this to the church that meets at so-and-so's house, another gathering of believers just on a smaller scale. And this is where we find ourselves. For our purposes in this series, we're predominantly speaking about this second use of the word. We want to be be locked in on what does Jesus want for us as a local congregation. We're part of the global church, part of the church historical, but right here and right now in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, what are we supposed to be? What are we supposed to care about? What are we supposed to value? That's what we're doing in this series. And so with that, let's dive into our text today. And see why we think the Bible actually tells us that it's appropriate for us to think of the church as pretty decent, right? We're pretty decent. That's a healthy way for us to think of church. Now, as we dive into our text, there are lots of metaphors. We're going to find a metaphor um, that's very powerful in our text. And there are lots of metaphors used throughout the Bible to speak of God's relationship with his people. Uh, There is the, the metaphor of a father to his children, which is a powerful metaphor, Luke 15, Um, There, there's the metaphor of a king to his subjects, right? Um, A shepherd to his sheep. And all of those metaphors are very important, but none of them sort of plums everything that is true about God's relationship with his people. And we need the metaphor that we see in our text as well today, which is a bridegroom to his bride or a husband to his wife. That's how God speaks about his people, And there's no more powerful example of that metaphor than in Hosea here, the no more powerful depiction. And it'd be a struggle to find anywhere throughout the whole canon of the scriptures a more pointed place where God tells us how he feels about you and I. I don't know about you, but that's interesting to me. I was wrestling with that this week. Like God has feelings about you. He feels deeply about you. He, what you do affects him. Like, I mean, have you ever thought about that? I mean, I, I wrestled with that this week. I'm like, is that really, can that really be true, God, that you allow your emotions to be affected by little me? Me and you and us together, the church. This text says clearer than anything could ever be that God has feelings, strong feelings about us. And this particular story in Hosea, unfortunately, has been... Edited out of most Sunday school curriculums, fortunately not ours, our kids learn about Hosea and Gomer uh, in the Gospel Project. And, of course, in an age-appropriate way, but they learn this story. And this story has been shunned from most pulpits because of the language we just heard in the text. But this is the most powerful story, somewhat in all of literature, that tells us how God feels about his people. So let's look at the story together. Um, now, the setting for our story And and by the way, there's really two stories going on here. They're parallel stories. God with his people, Hosea with his wife. And the setting for the story is Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom. And Hosea is a prophet to Israel, the northern kingdom. And the prophet's job is to hear the voice of the Lord and tell the people what God says. And sometimes it gets even more messy for prophets. They not only hear the voice of God, but he says, I want you to act this out. So throughout the Old Testament, you'll find the prophets doing some goofy things, some messed up things. And, and, you know, so it's not unusual that Hosea hears God's voice, but what he hears is utterly disturbing, isn't it? I mean, verse verse two, God says, it says, when the the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, literally fornication is the word, a promiscuity, and have children of whoredom. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that would be a hard word to hear, right? I mean, God is literally saying, God is prophesying, you're going to take to yourself a wife who's going to tear your heart out. She's going to be unfaithful to you. She's going to mess your whole life up. Now, why would God say that to his prophet, his man of God? Like, why would he tell him to do that? Well, he tells him. At the back half of verse 2, he says, For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. That's why. So so God's saying, like, Israel's been unfaithful to me. Hosea, you're my guy. You're my prophet. So your, your responsibility is to teach the people how I feel about them. And listen, man, there's no way for you to get it until you see the person you love the most running into the arms of another lover. You just won't understand. So you got to do it, buddy. We're going to do this. We're going to walk this path together. There's no way for you to feel how I feel until you've been betrayed like I've been betrayed. I'm like, wow, what a task. That's what he tells Hosea to do. What a task. Now let's just pause and think here for a moment. Have you ever felt like your sin does this to God? feels like that to God? Have you ever felt like, I mean, we talk a lot about the consequences of sin for us, but have you ever felt like your sin, your waywardness, your coldness towards God has that impact on his heart that he feels like he's watching his spouse run into the arms of another lover? He's watching him send text messages. He's watching them looking him up on Facebook. Have you ever felt that? I mean, it's one thing if you're like, okay, I think of God as a king to his subjects, and yeah, if a subject breaks a rule, the king doesn't like that. He gets angry. Or or a father to a child. Yeah, you know, dad doesn't like it when I screw up, but he kind of expects that from me sometimes. Or a shepherd to his sheep. It's like, well, stupid sheep. They're going to do what they do. You don't have so many feelings about it, right, bishops? You know this, right? You're right. You don't feel too bothered by it. But if it's your spouse... That's a different thing. That's a different feeling altogether. And God says this is the way he feels about us. And we continue to run after other things to make us happy and to fulfill us and give us only the satisfaction that he can give. Let's keep going with the story. Verse 3, Hosea obeys the Lord. He woos Gomer and wins her heart. And I imagine this young prophet was quite the guy. You know, (laughs) Gomer came with a past. But I imagine that Hosea fell hard for her. Maybe even hope that the love that she developed for him would somehow make the prophecy of the Lord about her come untrue. Just thought maybe in the back of his mind, Lord, there's got to be a chance. She, she's, she's in love with me. All that you said before, that, maybe that won't come untrue. Or maybe that won't come true. And then she conceived. She bore three children to Hosea, two boys and a girl, all of them given very specific names uh, that were warnings to the people of Israel about the Lord's judgment. Jezreel which is a very specific place of judgment. No mercy and not mine. Pretty stunning warnings, pretty stunning names, but they were also indicative. They're also telling about what was going on in the prophet's marriage. That what had begun as a, a suspicion for Hosea about his wife had become an obsession, which had turned into a damning certainty that what the Lord had promised about Gomer had come true and almost right away. She started cheating on him almost right away. And now he was certain that these three kids that he was playing with every day were not his, not mine, the name of the last one. he had concluded it. Not only had Gomer been unfaithful to Hosea, but she had passed off their children as belonging to him. And though we don't see what's going on behind the doors of the prophet's house, you could just imagine him, crushed, angry, struggling to carry on, and then Gomer delivers the final blow. She left him. She left him with three kids. She's out of there. She's got better things to do. So just a few short years, Hosea's gone from being one of the most respected men of the community, the prophet of the Lord, to a man utterly broken and humiliated, a man of sorrows and familiar with grief. He's now a single dad to three kids that he's convinced are not his biologically. All the while, the wife that he loves is drinking her fill of the love of other men. You can imagine the gossip around town over the backyard fences. Did you hear about the prophet? Yeah, his wife left him, huh? Man, I thought I've seen her with another guy. Turns out it's true. wonder about those kids. Are, you think those are his? I don't know. It's a heart wrenching story, isn't it? It's just painful even to to think through. And it parallels the one God is telling about his people, about us. Look what God says in chapter 2, verse 5 about Israel. It's no less graphic. For their mother has played the whore, she who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. What's he saying there? Well, the, the people were worshiping Baal, the Canaanite fertility god. They're thinking he's the one that gives them good crops. He's the one that gives them children. He's the one that gives them a plentiful harvest. When all the while it was God. So God's watching this happen. He's busy providing for his people, being good to his people, blessing his people, and he watches them run after other gods and praise other gods for giving them the good things that he gave them. And it broke his heart. We should be careful not to be too critical of the Israelites here, right? It's easy for us to say, well, we don't worship other gods. We don't have any statues in our houses, any idols. But really, what does idolatry come down to? Well, it's just making anything even a good thing, bigger than God. That's all it is. Putting something in place of God that becomes more fundamental to your life and happiness. That's what idolatry is. And interestingly, throughout the Old Testament, as we see here in our text as well, God is constantly describing his people's idolatry using the terms of sexual addiction. I mean, there are, if we would go through it, um, there are passages in the Bible that make even you, the most modern of you blush because of God's vivid and graphic imagery of what his people are doing and how he ties that to sexuality. Listen to what he says in Jeremiah 20, or 2, verses 23 and 24. He says to his people Israel, How can you say I'm not unclean? I have not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there, a wild donkey used to the wilderness, in her heat sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In, their month they will fi- in her month they will find her. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, it is hopeless, for I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. Did God just do that? He compared his people to wild animals in heat. So he said, like, you cannot resist this. Your chemicals are so powerful that you just run after any other god. Why is God doing that? And why is he doing this in our text too? Why is he using all this sexual imagery to describe idolatry? Well, certainly, there's a lot going on there, as is is the case in our story here in Hosea. But primarily, what is he saying? He's saying that the idolater... Is doing the same thing with their soul as the sexual addict is doing with their body. See, a a sex addict, really what they're trying to do is they're saying, I've got this inner emptiness, and they're trying to cure that inner emptiness with a counterfeit intimacy. It's always always something fake or false. Pornography, it's it's fake intimacy, it's not real. But they're trying to cure this inner emptiness with this false or fake intimacy. it never winds up doing what they think it's going to do. You know, it never works. That's why there's this escalating quality to most addictions, but sexual addiction in particular, because you need more of that stimulus to create the same pleasure. Like C.S. Lewis said, it's an ever-increasing, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. That's the formula that the enemy wants to give to you. But it's the same with idolatry. It's the same thing with idolatry. You're putting yourself in the arms of something else. To cure that which only God can cure. You're saying to your career or to your spouse or to your retirement or to your social status or whatever has become God in your life, you're saying, you must make me happy and fulfill me. You must finally quench this inner thirst that I have. And they can't do it. They can't even come close. St. Augustine spoke of disordered loves as being sort of the problem in all sin. Like he said, sin is usually not about loving things. It's about loving things like hobbies or kids or drink or sex too much. It's about loving them in place of God. And that's precisely why God connects idolatry to sexual addiction. Because you're never going to get what you're after. You can drink all you want, but you're only going to wind up more thirsty. Which is exactly what Gomer finds out in our text. And we pick up the story at chapter 3. And as normally the story goes, for people in Gomer's shoes, things went downhill fast. From all descriptions, she's basically a sex addict. She's out of control. And no matter what our sin is, it all leads to addiction. And eventually, all addiction leads to slavery. And horrifically, this is where we find Gomer and Hosea in chapter 3. Gomer, get this, is for sale. She's for sale. Horrifically, stunningly. We don't know how it happened, but the text says she was loved by another man, so she's still with another man, but somehow she finds herself at the auction for sale. There are a couple ways in that day that this could have happened. If she was with a man um, and he could no longer provide for her, um, tragically, that was an option, was to sell her. But it's also very possible that Gomer, in order to provide for herself, had gotten into actual prostitution, and she had a pimp. And maybe she lost her marketability, and this guy's cutting his losses selling her. But whatever it is, this is the lowest of the low. Hosea finds her at some sort of a human auction. Terrible, horrific place for any person to be. According to history, it's likely that at this kind of an auction, she's stripped almost completely naked so the buyer would know what he's getting. And you can just imagine Gomer there in this horrific moment of total humiliation and degradation, and the last thing she can do, it's not much, but to hang on to any shred of dignity, she just closes her eyes, you know, as the auction begins. Oh, man, this is bad. And the auctioneer starts, and he says, Anybody give me 10 shekels? And a guy says, yeah, I'll give you 10. But right away, there's another voice. 12 shekels. She says, wait a minute. I recognize that voice. It's the voice of Hosea. What's he doing here? What's he doing here? The auctioneer says, 15 shekels. And a guy says, yeah, I'll give you 15. Right away, another voice chimes in and says, Fifteen and a homer and a half of barley. The Guy has no counter. Sold to Hosea. He buys his wife back. He buys what's already his. And just imagine this moment when Hosea goes up to his wife. She's totally disheveled. She's totally broken. Probably hasn't eaten well lately. Probably hasn't been cared for well. But this is the woman who had ripped his heart out. Soiled his reputation. Left him to care for three kids, not likely his own. He's got some beefs with this woman. What's he going to say to her? But also think, what, what, what's Gomer thinking at this moment? She's probably thinking, oh, I get it. This is how you, you take your revenge on me. Now I'm going to be your slave and I have to do whatever you want. But what does Hosea do? He does exactly what the Lord has told him to do. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. God has said, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisin. He says to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Hosea had every ground in the Hebrew um, culture for divorce over and over and over again, right? And given, if it was left up to him, I'm fairly certain that he would have made that decision. But this is God. This is reflecting God's heart to his people. So instead of divorce, he recites his vows to her again. Says his vows to her again. Renews his covenant with Gomer again. We don't hear anything else about Hosea and Gomer in the rest of the book, but I believe this was the moment that their marriage began to heal. I believe this was a new start for them and that Gomer finally became contented in her husband's love, that she was faithful to him the rest of their days. It's an incredible story. Many have called it the greatest love story ever told, but we have to remember there are two stories going on at parallel here, right? God is saying, look, I love my people Israel, but they've been unfaithful to me, have run after other gods. Hosea loves Gomer, but she's been unfaithful to him, has run after other men. And he has stepped up in the marketplace and bought her back, paid the price to bring her back to himself. And you might say, well, that's where the story stopped tracking. What's God doing for his people then? Where does God pay the price for his bride? Where does God enter the marketplace? And what does this have to do with us as the church anyway? Isn't this about Israel? Isn't this about Old Testament stuff? Well, look at chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. It's cryptic because it's a prophecy, but it's all here. The Lord says this, And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the horror, belong to another man. So I will be with you. I'm sorry, verse 4 and 5. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So what's he talking about here? He's talking about a time when the people are going to become faithful to God. He's talking about a time when they're going to return and seek David, their king. Which is really strange because David's been dead for a long time. So what in the world is Hosea ta- prophesying about here? I mean, David's, David's been out of the picture. He's not coming back. Well, Hosea doesn't have the right name, but he's talking about a greater king, David, who will come. He's talking about a descendant of David who's been promised the throne of Israel forever and ever. He's talking about our Jesus. And lo and behold, when Jesus shows up on the scene, he starts talking in ways that help us to make this connection, right? They come up to him and they say, hey, Jesus, how come John the Baptist's disciples fast, but your disciples don't fast? And he says, well, right now the bridegroom is with them. When the bridegroom is gone, then they will fast. Who's this bridegroom? Of course, we fast forward to the end of the story in Revelation, and we see Jesus is, in fact, the bridegroom, and the church is the bride, beautifully adorned for her husband. Friends, we're the bride. Jesus is the bridegroom. Do you see it, brothers and sisters? We are Gomer. Bummer of a name, by the way, right? We are Gomer.
0: And
2: you might ask, Pastor Dave, how in the world is that good news that the metaphor God uses to describe us as a wandering, unfaithful, philandering bride. Oh, friends, it is such good news. You have to understand this day it It's such good news that God would describe us in this way and show us this picture. Because that means our salvation is not hinging on our broken efforts, but on a perfect Savior who loves us relentlessly. Do you understand that today? And that's the truth in this passage. It means that we can be confident as the church, even in the midst of how horrible we are, even in the midst of how wretched we are, because our God is constant and stable and steadfast. It says that we're God's people who constantly struggle with running after other lovers, other things that will satisfy us and make us happy, and eventually those things lead to all kinds of addiction and slavery and brokenness in our lives. But in the midst of this, Jesus, our great Hosea, comes and he gets in the marketplace himself, and he buys us back with his own life. He pays the price for us to bring us back to his, to his own. He is steady when we waver. He is faithful when we're unfaithful. He is trustworthy when we're untrustworthy. Friends, Jose and Gomer is the perfect representation of the tension that exists in the church. See, there's always two things that are true about us. And this goes back to our sort of the phrase that's overarching in this series: a pretty decent church. Well, on the one hand, um, we're wretched, unfaithful, a deplorable people. Nothing decent about us at all. But on the other hand, we have a perfect, impeccable Savior who's given everything for us. He's loved us so incredibly. He marries us and gives us his name. He gives us a new identity, and better yet, he's making us more like him every day. So the big idea is this why can we call the church decent? Jesus is awesome. We're horrible, so we can be decent. Jesus is awesome and he loves us, therefore we can be decent. That's why church is a pretty decent place. What does this mean practically for us? Well, it means a lot of things, and we don't have time for all of them today, but I just want to highlight the main one, and that is this tension that will always live in this tension. No matter where you go, church, around the world, you're going to find this tension, the tension between our brokenness and Jesus' awesomeness will always exist in the group of people called church. You'll never find it not existing. This tension between our brokenness, our complete, utter mess, and his awesomeness. This means if you spend any time around life, church, you can expect to encounter both realities on a regular basis. I'm about to warn you here, you new covenant members. I'm sorry. This is what's coming. All right? Um, and this means, like, by the way, we can't think too highly of ourselves because look at our atrocious record. The gospel doesn't let us think too highly of ourselves because we just have to look back into our past a day or so ago, and then we're we're completely and utterly humiliated. But it doesn't let us think too lowly of ourselves because look at the one who loved us. Look what he gave for us. We can't think too lowly of ourselves. He esteemed us worthy of his own life. So if you spend any time around life church, you're gonna realize both these things are still true. We're still broken, and it's obvious. In our humanity, we don't love one another in God the way that we should. We just don't. We don't do it. Uh, We make other things bigger than God. We run after other lovers that will satisfy us and fill us and and make us happy and things that we become convinced there's life in that when there's only life in God himself. We still do that. That's still true about us, isn't it? This is the part where you say amen. This This is true about us, right? Like you're broken, I'm broken. We're still a mess, aren't we? That's true, and we call ourselves the church. We say we're Christians. We're following Jesus. It's still true about us. It's frustrating. We're broken, sinful people. So it shouldn't surprise you to encounter this at Life Church. You will be hurt by people here. You will um, you will find reason for offense with people here. And I'm not saying there's never a good reason to leave a local congregation. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is. Any church that you ever join, if you're from another church, I encourage you to take this attitude. Like, don't have an attitude Have an attitude of we don't push away from the table easily. Have a covenantal attitude. This is why this works great on Covenant Members Sunday as well. Because what we're saying is, hey, there's always going to be problems everywhere. There's always going to be brokenness everywhere. And we're expecting to have to give each other a lot of grace because that's always going to be true. And we can give each other a lot of grace because of the one who's loved us. Now, at the same time as our brokenness being true, we have to remember and keep in our minds the God, the perfect, holy, magnificent God who's loved us so immensely. He laid himself out for us. He said, I'll pay any price. I'll give anything, even his own self. And he did pay the price. He took hell emotionally, psychologically, physically for us. He couldn't have paid a greater price to have us back. And this Savior, you'll encounter him here too. This lover, you'll encounter him here too. I pray that you've encountered him already today. And he is bent on changing each and every one of us. And everybody here is on this continuum of change, becoming more like him. That's why the church can be decent. Because of the one who's loved us and is changing us to be more like him. And that's where our identity starts. Right there, church. That's where we start. We don't get our identity by looking at what decent, moral people we are. No, no, that would be depressing. We get our identity by looking to Jesus, our great Hosea, who's given everything for us. Because he is awesome, we can be decent. Amen? Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we accept this picture, Lord, that we are Gomer. And it's not flattering, but it is comforting. That we know in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our wandering, in the midst of our lusting after other things, you have stepped in and purchased us, the blood of your son Jesus, and have loved us enough to redeem us. We thank you for that today. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.
0: I don't have much more to add to this, more just... I was thinking about this from the time of Adam and Eve in the fall. God was always trying to bring us back. He was always trying to bring his people back. He did it through Noah. He did it through Moses. He did it through David, through the judges, through kings and prophets. He was constantly trying to redeem his people and remind them that he created them, that he loved them, and that he wanted them to be with him forever. And even though it seemed like they would come back for a time, God said, okay, I'm really going to do this. And that's when he sent Jesus. It's when Jesus came um, and he revealed God's ha- He revealed the heart of God to us. He showed it as he walked on earth through teaching, through signs, through miracles. And, and as Dave said, he, he did it because he went and he suffered for us. He suffered and, and died for us to break that bondage of sin over us. And then he rose again from the dead. So the the bondage of death was gone, and so that we could be united to him. And then he sends his Holy Spirit to us to constantly remind us that he is with us, and that we are his people, and that he loves us, and that those words keep coming back, his words keep coming back to us. He wants to be with us, Um, and he wants us to love him. And so today, for the first time, if that's, if you're in the place of, I just don't know him, I don't know that it, he loves me, um, you know, the prayer team is here. You can come and pray with them and, and just start this walking with Jesus. Or maybe you're in a place where you feel your heart grow cold. There's also a time to, whether you're in your chair, or you come and pray with um, someone up here to just commit your heart to loving Jesus and to pursuing him and, and walking with him as he's walked with us. So I'm going to pray one more time. Um, the, the worship team is going to do one more song. You can stand um, and sing with them, and when they're done, then you're free to go either to pray or um, to go grab your kids. Jesus, we just thank you that you are with us, that you are our bridegroom, that you desire for us to, to love you and to know your love. And so I pray that over all of us that we would, um, you would help us to know what it is to be your people and to walk as your people all of our days, to be decent because you, you are awesome. And We give you all these things in your son's name. Amen.